0: Good morning. Thank you for being here again um, this morning. Again, thank you for being here. Not thank you for being here again. Well, actually, thank you for being here again. And again, thank you for being here. So it all fits just whichever way you want to take it. Um, Last week in Nehemiah, in the last message, we're going to title First Things First. Maybe that should be the first title, but because of the way this book is structured, um, Nehemiah began to talk and what we begin to learn or have learned from this book in the Nehemi- uh, book of Nehemiah is that the children of Israel have been dispersed they've been away from God's city the city of God the city of Jerusalem and because of that the city has fallen into ruins and God raised up this one man, Nehemiah, who had a conversation with his brother Hananiah and Hananiah came back and said, man, you're not going to believe what the, what the old neighborhood looks like and Nehemiah got a burden in his mind and in his heart for it and the scripture says that he began to weep and he prayed and as he wept and he prayed, he said, God, do it now. And God wouldn't do it now. In fact, he had to pray for four months. So not only did he have to weep and pray, but he had to pray and wait. And he was waiting for God to work, and he was waiting for an opportunity. But because Nehemiah had consecrated himself, because Nehemiah had set his heart on God, then he was able at that right moment to hear from the king. And it says that one day he walked into the king's presence, and the king said, Dude, you're sad. And Nehemiah knew, and at that moment, he prayed. He said, God, what? And he started talking. He said, the house and the land of my fathers lies in ruin. And for whatever reason, the mercy of God and the sovereignty of God, at that moment, pricked the king's heart, and he began to have that conversation. And Nehemiah said, can I go back and work? And the king said, you can go back, but not only can you go back, I'll write you a letter that gives you safe passage. And not only will I give you safe passage, you can go into my forest and cut down the trees that you need and all of this kind of stuff. And so Nehemiah got back and he started working. And we learned that in 52 days that he built and with the people of Israel, he rebuilt the walls. And then after that, he hung the gates. And after they had had the walls built and the gates hung and all of this, it says that they, that they called out, the prophet Ezra. And he called Ezra to, to open the Bible. And it said that he would read it from 6 in the morning till, six, um, till 12 noon. And he did that for 7 days. And in the middle of all of that that was going on. The, um, there was the feast of the tabernacles. and And through the reading of the word and the feast. And the people being in the presence of God. They would look back. And they would remember that God had brought them out. They would look around and they would celebrate. And they would look ahead and they would claim. they The afflicted were comforted through the ministry of God's word. And you say, is that a pattern? Could it be that we get away from God and when we get away from God that we... um. That we struggle, and are there ways that we get brought back? And we see that through the reading of the Word that they were brought back. But you see, um, Samuel, that's not just a um, an Old Testament thing. Take your Bibles and turn to the Book of Romans, chapter seven. Romans chapter seven, verse twenty-two. I'll start in one. He said, Paul said, so I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. That is a struggle that's in every one of us. In one moment we delight in God. In the next moment we are drawn to sin. And it's, and it's a pattern. And it's not only a pattern in us. It was a pattern in the life of the children of Israel. But when they got into the Word. And I'm going to give you these blanks again. Because I got a little bit out of order there. But in Nehemiah chapter 8. At that Feast of Tabernacles. They could look back and they could Remember. That God was at work. They could look around and celebrate that God was working in them now. And they could look ahead with confidence. And they could claim that God was for them in the future. But you see in Nehemiah chapter 8. As I said earlier the afflicted were comforted. God brought them together. God drew them back to a place. He opened the word and they read the word. And they were reminded of the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. But in Nehemiah chapter 9, now we see something else at work. It's the longest prayer in Scripture outside of the Psalms. Chapter 9 prayers, this is a side note. Ezra, Nehemiah, and Daniel all have prayers in chapter 9. If you're praying one day and you say, God, I don't know what to pray. Open Ezra, Nehemiah, and Daniel chapter 9. There's a prayer that you can pray the Word of God. But Ezra, I'm sorry, but Nehemiah chapter 9 is a prayer of confession. They're confessing who God is. You're the great God. You're the mighty God. You're the wonderful God. Remember, these people had been in Egypt for a long period of time. These people had a lot of different influences and things going on in their lives. And they had to remember wait a minute, you're the great God. You're the almighty God. You're the wonderful God. You're the God I worship. You're the God I love. You're the God who provided for us and brought us out. You're the God who led us through the wilderness. You're the God who did all of these things for us. And now we remember you. We worship you. They're confessing who God is. And there are times in our lives that we need to stop and just say, It's you, God. You're the Almighty. You're in control. You're in charge. No matter what's going on in the political climate. No matter what's going on in the financial climate. No matter what's going on in the social climate or the anything else around me. But God, it's you. And you have said that you do not leave your people. You do not forsake your people. That you love your people. That you are with us always and forevermore. So that's what they did. We confess who you are. But God, we also know that that we have sin and we confess that sin. You see, this came as a result of being in the Word. In the book of Timothy it says, this Word is good for correction, instruction, for rebuking us. It draws us back to center. It says, this is where you are, God. And this is who you are, God. And this is who I am apart from you, God. And when I recognize who I am apart from you, then I have got to fall on my knees and say, God, forgive me and cleanse me from all my unrighteousness. In 1 John 1, 9, it says, If we confess, that means if we agree with God, that in our sin and our rebellion that we are being self-reliant, Miss Kathy. Yeah, I'm doing it my way. I'm doing my thing. And God, you know what? i got a good thing going, but we recognize through the word, God, i got to come back to you and I've got to get back on the foundation, on the Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. No matter how good it may be or what you think or how proud you are of the decision you made, it's Christ and we confess our sins and he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from that unrighteousness. But confession is not the famous apology we hear, If I've offended you, God. Or if I've offended anyone. No, it's coming and agreeing and recognizing that what God said is true and right. And that holy God calls us to the standard of righteousness. And it's not our righteousness, but His righteousness. And it's not our life, it's His life. It's... it's um, The exchanged life that we were talking about. It's exchanging my mind for His mind. My will for His will. My way for His way. And I agree with Him that He alone is God and He alone is good. You see, because when they were confronted through the word of who God is, and when they recognized their own sin, then they were confronted with their depravity you need to hear me. Every one of us apart from God is totally depraved. Completely and totally spiritually bankrupt. We have nothing to draw on. These people got into the Word and that's what happened. Now you see... In chapter 8, the afflicted were comforted. They were brought back together and said, God is real. God is for you. God is here and God wants to work into your life. But when they got into the presence of God, they could not ignore the sin of their own lives. And so now in chapter 9, the comforted were afflicted. They were afflicted with their sin, with their separation. And they had to be called back to confession. But you see, when we get into confession and we we bow our hearts and recognize that God is right and that he forgives and cleanses, now we're comforted. It's a cycle. That's what Nehemiah did in the first part. He was rebuilding the city. In the second part, he's rebuilding the people. There's a pattern there that we need to learn how to follow. That takes us to Nehemiah chapter 10. In Nehemiah chapter 10, because the people had been comforted when they were afflicted, and because they had been afflicted when they were comforted, and that led to confession and acclamation of who God is and the recognition of their depravity but now knowing who they were that led them to a season of making vows and if you turn back with me to the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 9 is where we're going to read, Nehemiah chapter 9 in verse 38. In view of all this, is what it says, Nehemiah nine thirty eight. In view of all this, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are all affixing their seals to it. They're making a vow. They're making a vow before God in front of their leaders, their worship leaders, their priests, those people... And they're saying, put a seal on it. You know if you have an important document, you have to find somebody who's a notary. And that notary puts a stamp and then that notary signs it in the presence of a witness. And that makes it a fixed and binding contract. This is the modern day equivalent or the latter day equivalent of a notary. And they're saying that this contract, what we're saying is binding. And God, before all these people, this is what we vow to you. And it's the idea of making a vow. And you say, well, is that scriptural? Well, let me just read to you a couple of things. Here it says they made it. And in Numbers 30, chapter, chapter 30, verse 2, it says, When a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to obligate himself by a pledge, he must not break his word but must do everything he said. In Ecclesiastes five four it says, When you make a vow to God, do not delay in fulfilling it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. And then in Matthew chapter five, verses thirty-three to thirty-seven. It also speaks, Jesus warned against making empty oaths. And you can read these, mark these later and go back and use them in your study. But these are vows. They're vow making. The people of Israel made a vow because they had been in the presence of God. Well, What is the value of a vow? The value of a vow is it gives us specific goals. What gets measured gets improved. God, I vow to you that I won't cuss anymore. Well, if you say a cuss word, you can say, oh, I broke my vow. But you've got a specific goal, something that you're working toward. God, I vow to you that I will read my Bible. God, I vow to you that I will give to you systematically of my income. It gives you a specific goal. It's something that you can know that in the presence of God, after being confronted with His Word, that you believe God was leading you to it and you vow it to Him. But it also, the value of a vow is that it allows us to express our love to God. God, I express my love to you and I express it this way. I will gather to worship with other believers. In a modern day understanding of it, do you take this woman to be your lawfully wedded wife? I do. And you have a date and a time and a place that you can remember that you made a vow. And it's symbolized with the giving and the receiving of the rings and the kissing of the bride. And turning around and saying, ladies and gentlemen, I now present to you Mr. and Mrs. And you fill in the blank. It's a goal. It's a way to express love. Love to God but we need to be careful because the vow itself is not what makes us right with God. The vow is an expression of love of a heart that's been committed to Him. While it may be helpful to make the vow, we don't succeed as Christians because we make promises, but because we believe the promises of God and we act upon them. God, I will seek you first. Why? Because you have said, if I seek you first, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, then all these things will be added. God, I believe that if I do it your way, if I follow your plan, your purpose, your direction, I believe that, that you will Be faithful to do what you said. God, I believe that if I honor you with my tithe and my offering, that you have said that you will open the windows of heaven and you will pour out your blessing on me. I believe God. It's not my vow that God needs. God needs my heart, and then because He has my heart, I surrender myself to Him, and He works in us. These people, they made vows. They made them to God specifically. They made them to God to express what He had done. But let's look at what are the vows. Well, I'll tell you this. In the first 27 verses of Nehemiah chapter 10, it's the people that made the vows. So if you're interested in knowing who made the vow, you go home and read it. Because that's a lot of names. But I will tell you, that's what the first 27 verses are. But when we pick up in verse 28... It says, the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the musicians, the temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the neighboring peoples for the sake of the law of God, joined together. Vow number one was that they submitted to God's word. We will submit to the word of God. Because keep reading, And all these now join their fellow Israelites and nobles and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses the servant of God and to obey carefully all the commands, the regulations and the decrees of the Lord our God. These people have been separated from God. These people by God's mercy had been brought back together and into His presence and they had been in His Word and they had been comforted and they had been afflicted and they had been convicted and they had confessed. And as a result of all of that confessing, they made these vows and the first vow they made was, we will be a people who get in the Word of God. But I want you to see, they did it with a curse. God, we, we invite you to curse us if we do not follow you. Ladies and gentlemen, we are going to have to be a people of the word. We've always needed to be a people of the word. But we have never more than now needed to be a people of the word. Because these are times that we cannot navigate in our own wisdom. There are things happening around us that we will not ever understand and there are needs greater than we'll ever be able to meet and there's a God that we can't know unless we know Him on His terms and He says, this is how you get to know me. So I've said it before in this series and I'm going to say it again. If you are not having a consistent time where you're in the Word, if you're not in a small group where the Word is being unfolded for you, if you do not have a systematic plan for understanding the word and allowing God to speak to you through his word, then today your vow needs to be as the children of Israel. God, we vow to submit ourselves to your word. And there are people around us that are saying, here's wisdom, and here's knowledge, and here's understanding. And in every way you turn, it's contrary to the word of God. And no matter how much it makes sense, and no matter how much it speaks to my felt need, if it is not submitted and sifted through God's Word, it is dross. It is chaff. It is the thing that needs to be blown away so that the true grain and the wheat stays. They were submitted to the Word of God. Who does God use to make an impact? First Chronicles 16.9 says, For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen and support those whose hearts are fully committed to Him. And God uses people that are submitted to Him and submitted to His Word. They didn't stop at that vow. They made another vow. In verse 28, again, let's go back. It says that we will separate ourselves from the world. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the musicians, the temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the neighboring people. That is the world. doesn't mean that they didn't interact. It doesn't mean that they didn't have maybe transactions or friendships or business relationships. What it says is they separated themselves from a worldly system that did not recognize and honor, submit, and obey God. You see... That's where the New Testament would say, do not conform to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. When my source of social understanding is social media, I'm going to get a flawed understanding. Every time. And I want to tell you, there are so many bogus reports going this or that way or something else or somewhere else or this. And both sides are calling the other side a liar and this and that. And I'm not sure who's telling the truth. I've got to go to the rock, the one that doesn't move and God doesn't move. He doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he says, if you will put your heart and trust on me, that I will not lead you astray. Man, these people said, we will separate from the world. We're going to be, God, your people. And we're not going to sift your word through the news. But we're going to sift the news through your word. There's a big difference. He's not calling us to be ignorant and uneducated and naive. He's just simply calling us to be people who measure things by truth. We separate from the world. In particular, if we keep reading in this passage, they're talking about here marriage. They're talking about marrying outside of those who follow Jehovah. There were some warnings. When the people in the ancient world made a marriage agreement, they normally confirmed their commitment in the presence of gods, their gods. And gave each other's idols a prominent place. Joshua 23, 13 says, To heathen spouses will become snares and traps for you. Whips on your back and thorns in your eyes. He's speaking specifically of stepping outside of those who follow. But I want to tell you that when we marry ourselves to a world system, we're doing the same thing. He says to us as the church, as the followers of Christ, don't be unequally yoked. They will submit to the word of God. They will separate themselves from the world. Then, on number, the third vow they made is in verse 31. It says that we will obey the Sabbath. When the neighboring people bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. And every seventh year, we will forego working the land and will cancel all debts. They will support a Sabbath, they will be there. Why? Because this day was set aside to honor God. It was distinctive from other days and given to God so that they might offer their worship to Him without being distracted by the demands of everyday life. Which I'm sure leads to the question, what is the Sabbath? What if my job requires me to work on Sunday? Well, you may have that job and you're not going to hell because your job made you work on Sunday. But it's saying that in your life that you set aside time to honor, recognize, and worship God. There are people that say Saturday is the Sabbath. And in the Old Testament and Jewish calendar, Ray, we were talking about this yesterday. That that's when it was. But when Jesus came, it said that on the first day of the week, and on the first day of the week, and on the first day of the week, that that it became tradition in the Christian calendar that we would worship on Sunday. But if you go to church on Saturday night or if your work schedule makes you work on Sunday and you set aside time on Wednesday or another day, but you're saying, God, today I'm yours. I'm focusing on you. That's the Sabbath. We will obey the Sabbath day. These are the things that we will do. Now, this idea of canceling debt, you think, that's a pretty good idea. Is it the seventh year yet? Um, I'm sure that would be cool. But here's the point of that is that people and God are more important than money. It's people and God are more important than working all my life to hold on to the things that I cannot keep. We don't have that system, so don't go borrow it and think in seven years it's gone. That's one of those things we'll have to talk to God about when we get in heaven. But the point there is, Value what God values. God values a surrendered heart. God values a people who will confess. God values a people who will be submitted to the word. And God values, he said in the New Testament, love the Lord your God. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. These people made a fourth commitment in verses 32 through 39. It said, we will support God's work. The phrase, the house of our God. It's used nine times, or God's work is used nine times in this section. It refers to a restored temple. These people were promising to follow God's priorities by submitting to Him, by separating themselves from the world, by keeping the Sabbath, and by supporting the work of God. You know, an extreme home makeover... Um, they'll come in and the show that used to be on, they'd have a house. The house needed remodeling or tearing down and they'd tear down the house and in seven days they'd build it back. And one of the things they found out was that they were tearing down the house and the house was gone and they were putting it back but there was no plan for sustaining the house and now a lot of those houses are not in good shape or the people are no longer in them. The point here is, God has wonderfully and graciously supplied and allowed us to go back to the city of God, Jerusalem. And He has made it possible for us to restore our walls and ultimately restore our temple. We're going to follow God, submit to God, because we do not want this to happen again. We don't want to be in this place another time. But when we begin to read and see what all these people are saying about and what God is teaching us about His Word and about supporting His work, we begin to see other things. So look at verse 32. Verse 32 says that we will assume the responsibility for carrying out the commands to give a third of a shekel each year for the service of the house of our God. It is a personal responsibility there's obedient giving there. There's We s- will support God's work. It's a personal responsibility to us. Verse 35 says to us, We will also assume responsibility for bringing to the house of the Lord each year the first fruits of our crops and of every fruit tree. You see, it's not that's what they ought to do. It's what I ought to do. But you see, it's not just about a personal responsibility and what God wants of me, but it's also about being obedient to God. We will do this. We will bring it. We will be the ones that put it in there. They didn't practice impulse giving. Oh, you know what? I hadn't been in the church in a while, and I haven't put a dollar in the plate. So here, hold on just a second. There. And on impulse, I do it. No, he's saying systematically. We will set aside. It is determined before It's earned that that amount is going to be given to God. And I'll ask you this morning, have you done that? Do you understand a personal responsibility as a child of God and a member of a local congregation that God expects you to be one who gives? But in expecting to give, have you obediently and systematically said, this is what I'm going to do. I invite you. You can look at our, I tell you this, anytime I talk about money, you can look at Mine and Gail's giving record. You will see that it is there, and you will see that it's systematic. Given consistently. If I'm in town or not in town, when I get paid, that is the amount of money that will be given. These people had a personal responsibility. They realized that God wanted them to be obedient in their giving. But not only was it to be obedient, but it was to be systematic. But it was also to be proportionate. The reference here in verse 34, let's look at it right quick. It says this, We the priests, the Levites and the people have cast lots to determine when each of our families is to bring to the house of our God at set times each year a contribution of wood to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. The implication here is, and I don't fully understand it, I'll be honest with you, because I could not get a clarity on it. But they're like these people, the Levites here, not necessarily an abundance of cash. So they said, We will bring this offering. And this offering will be an offering of wood for the altar. Somebody else may have been loaded and they would say, well, I'm going to bring this and it's that, but this is what we have, and in proportion to what you have given us, or God through our time and our talent, we will bring this and we will support the work of God in this city of Jerusalem, and you know, in those seasons where you find yourself unemployed or you find yourself unable, that's when you can say, Lord, I don't. Have this, but what I have, I'm going to bring it, and you can count on me. So it's personal, it's obedient, it's systematic, it's proportionate, but it's also sacrificial. You remember David said, "I won't give an offering to the Lord that costs me nothing." Yes, is your offering costing you something? Is it a sacrifice in in honor, and reference, and worship, and? To who God is and what He has done for you in your life. That's why it says, "Bring the first fruit," to bring the best thing, to bring that, and said, "God, it's yours because you are worthy of it all." Thank you that you only allowed this much, or asked for this much, but God, I'm giving it to you. I'm going to trust you, Miss Angel. I remember the testimony that you shared with us about not always being able, but in Doing and God providing in miraculous ways and met needs in your life as a single mom. It's sacrificial. Mother Teresa said, if you give what you do not need, it isn't giving. C.S. Lewis said, I don't believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare systematically, proportionately, sacrificially. You know, at Mount Zion, we give four ways. We give our tithe, which supports our budget and our ministry budget. Um, We give to our building fund, which supports our building payment. We give to missions, which is faith promise, which supports missionaries around the world. And occasionally, we give a love offering for a special need that may arise in our congregation. This year we've taken up two offerings every worship service. The first offering was designated to the building and the second offering was designated to the budget. In 2017 we're going to go back to one offering in the service but in that time we still are not giving, we still give the four ways. We still give to the budget, we still give to the building. We still give to missions and occasionally we will have a love offering. But man, these people in reference and in respect and in remembering what God had done for them, they were making vows. God, it's your word. We're going to do it. We're going to submit to it. But God, we're also going to submit to supporting your work. It was sacrificial, but it was comprehensive. Go to verse 36. As it is also written in the law, we will bring the firstborn of our sons and of our flocks to the house of our God, to the priest ministering there. Now that was not child sacrifice, okay? This was more what they did in the book of Samuel when it says, For this child I prayed, and as long as he lives, this child belongs to you. I give him to you. God, these are my flocks. You have given me these flocks. God, they are not mine. They are yours, and I want to use them. I want to be a steward, you see, because while the tithe says give 10%, that does not free reign for the 90%. The 90% now, God, I'm going to take this and surrender it to you, and you tell me how to use it for your glory. It's comprehensive. It's not just giving God my resources, but it's giving God my life, my family. What's that song? All of me. Why not take all of me? Yeah. ooh, That was bad, but you get the point? Yeah. That's what he's telling us to do. God, it's yours. All of me. It's prescribed. Look at verse 37. Moreover, we will bring to the storerooms of the house of our God, to the priest, to the first of our ground meal, our grain offerings, of the fruit of all of our trees, and all of our new wine and olive oil. They were not only to bring first, but the tithe of the crops to God. And here's a fair question. Do I believe that a tithe is a commandment? Or principle. And I have believed both in my life. I will tell you that. But I believe that it's. My growing opinion is. That it's a principle. That God says. If then. If you do this. Then. I will do that. I believe in the Old Testament, it may have been a commandment, but I believe more in the New Testament understanding of it. It's a principle of God's teaching. I think if you want a good understanding of that, you could research Dr. Stanley, Charles Stanley on that, and he has a a good understanding of it. I believe God does command us to give. And I think he gives us a guideline toward giving, and he says, if you'll do it, then this is what I'll do. You will be blessed because of it. So it's a prescribed thing. It's something that, that God does. So if we take these vows that the, that the Israelites made in front of Nehemiah and God and the people, what would be kind of the outcome of that? I believe submitting to God, the first vow they make, answers the question, who's number one in my life? God, I submit to you in your word. You are number one. I believe separating from the world covers the... Who gets my time and my energy? Where am I going to spend it? How am I going to spend it? What am I going to place a premium on? What is going to be the priorities of my life? What am I going to set? I had a conversation yesterday with someone. What When it says that... it fasted in the scripture. What does that mean? Well, there's, it means a lot of things, but it's three days, some days, up to 40 days in there. And a lot of times it's associated with food, but you can fast from social media. You can fast from entertainment. You can fast from something that's important to you. But it's setting aside a time where you give up something that's precious for the purpose of using that time to focus on God. Can it be food? Yes. Could it be social media? Yes. Could it be television? Could it be exercise? Could it be anything? Yes, it could. It could be all of those things. But it's setting aside time to say, God, you are speaking. You want to speak to me. I want to hear from you. So I'm going to concentrate on this time. So submitting to, to God answers the question, who's number one? Separating from the world says, who gets my energy and my time? Who gets Where am I, is my influence going to come from? Practicing a Sabbath deals with our reverence of God. God, you are worthy of a moment and a time where I set aside everything else to focus on you. And the last one, supporting God's work work involves how we spend our money. John Maxwell would say, if you want to know somebody's commitment to Christ, look at their checkbook. And where does it go? If we're submitting to God, He has all of us. If He has all of us, He has promised that He will bless us. There may be rocks in the road, but He says, I will help you to overcome those obstacles. That you will be my people, you will be for my glory, you will be for my honor. People will come to know you, know him through us. And then there's a passage of scripture that, that intrigues me. It says that unless the Lord build the house, those who labor, labor in vain. And I think that we can work hard and harder and hardest. But if we miss the importance of this last lesson in the book of Nehemiah, we might labor in vain. So God, help us to be submitted to you all the way to supporting your work. The submission to God begins with knowing for certain that you have a personal relationship with God through His Son, Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. We can't get to God through our vows. The vows don't gain us love. The vows are made as an expression of love and because we're loved. So the step, first step is to come to God. The second step as a follower of Christ is to be surrendered and submitted to him. And I think a natural progression in the process then is to associate, affiliate, to be with God's people. Asking how he can use us together for his glory. So this morning, if you've not ever come to know Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, then can I invite you to come and say, Jesus, here's my life. You say, well, I don't fully understand it. Well, then will you just come and ask the question? Help me understand it. I'd love to. We would love to. To the child of God, the one that does have that personal relationship with God through the blood of Christ, then it's a time for us to be like the children of Israel. God, we submit to your word. God, we submit to your way. We want to be on your timetable, your plan, your purpose, your work. David said, search me, God, and know me. See what's in me that's not pleasing to you. As God reveals it, then we take it to him in confession. God, forgive us. If you don't have a church home and you would like to be a part of this church, in just a moment when we have our time of response, come and say, I want a a church family. I want to belong. I want to be a part of God's work in this community. We would love to have you. So, Father, today, as we finish our study in the book of Nehemiah, as we transition from thinking Old Testament to New Testament and the birth of Christ, God, continue your work in us. Teach us how to be convicted and teach us how to confess. Teach us how to surrender, submit, and to repent of sin. God, teach us to make vows that that are pleasing to you and that are an expression of all that you've done for us. Teach us how to have an exchanged life. Lord, I pray for each one of us in this room. You have declared that you want to to know us and you've declared declared that you want to be known by us. So Lord, continue. Continue continue. Revive us. Restore us. God, thank you that you continue to provide for us. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more or to contribute to online giving, please visit www.mzbc.org If you enjoyed this message and would like to hear more, simply click on the sermons tab or subscribe to the Simple Truth Podcast through iTunes. Thank you for supporting Mount Zion where you are welcome, wanted, and needed.